2 Corinthians chapter 2. We want to look for a little while this morning at being ministers of the New Testament. Being ministers of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 14. And it says this, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto, unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart, and such trust we through Christ to Godward. Not that we sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stone, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And I chose the text from the sixth verse of that chapter 3, able ministers of the New Testament able ministers of the New Testament. We carry this thing that we call a Bible around in our hands, and it's, it's in our houses, and it's, it's lying all over uh, almost every place that you can go in the United States. There is a Bible there, and it's a source of information. You can look through it, and you can see history all the way back to antiquity. We can find our roots there. It's a, to many, it's a status symbol. I, I've seen some Christians carrying Bibles that you know that it almost gives them a hernia. The thing was so large, and, and, and they carry this. It's a status symbol. And, of course, some of the pious carry those little bitty ones around. You know, you have to, I don't know how in the world they ever thumb through the thing. But it's a status symbol to many. And to others, it's a, just having it close is a source of comfort to their soul. And, and certainly, I, I witness to the comfort part. I, I just, just being close to the Word of God, knowing that we have it, is a source of comfort. Back, I don't know if they do it anymore in the military or not, but used to when you went into service, the chaplaincy would come by and they would give you a little New Testament to carry around. It was part of your issue with the liberal part of the, of the world. Now, I kind of rather uh, think that they don't do that anymore. But it's a comfort having the Word of God. 
And if we seriously view the Bible, which sadly most people don't seriously take a look at it, we would know that, that men died. Men died to put together this what we call the Bible and to bring it into just so we can carry it around in our hands. That represents the life and ministry and the inpouring of, of men's energies and even to the giving of this earthly life just to bring it into our hands. And we know that the Holy Spirit revealed this. This is not just another book. I'm sorry, liberal theologians. It's not just another piece of material that, that is uh, back in antiquity and teaches us history. This, we believe, is the living word breathed by the Holy Spirit, word of God that if we apply it, it will change lives and has changed lives. And if I were to show, ask for a raise of hands, I would be convinced that everyone here today has been dramatically changed by some passage in this Word of God. How, let, me, let me just ask for a show of hands on this. How many of you have a special passage that in times of need or when you, when you need some solace or that comfort that we were speaking about, you just kind of reach back into that little locker where you hold the precious things, the memories of family or the memories of good times and those that you love, the special occasions. And in times of need, there's one little or a few little passages back there that, that just minister to you. How many of you have those locked away someplace? Raise your hand. Yes, I, we well, almost to a person, I think those things are there. And we believe that the reason for that is that every word in this book was God-breathed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit saw to it that we get it. We see it mainly uh, if we just by a cursory view of it. We see it as, as, a, as a book divided in, into two parts. We just look at the, the, uh, the first part and, and we see that it says Old Testament there. And then we flip about two-thirds of the way through it, and it says New Testament there. And we tend to think, if we're not careful in our thinking, that this is just a, a book of the Old Testament, which are, are the old, old stories. And then we think about the New Testament. They are, these are just the newer old stories. The old, old, and the newer old. And we tend to think about it that way. And we tend to think about it as, well, if we read it sometime, I'm just reading words that, that are just history. They're, they're wonderful, and I, knew, I know that back there someplace there, there were people who were doing these things, but we just kind of tend to think, well, those, uh, those were history stories that are in there, and, and maybe the Holy Spirit has something to say. But to the heart who's seeking, to the heart that's seeking, those things start leaping out and ministering to us. To men, these are the Old Testament and the New Testament, stories of antiquity and just sometimes just stories. But to God, Testament had more meaning than that. And we need to break the word down and look at it. The Old and the New, these are, are, are covenants, covenants with God. If we look in our present time and look at the word covenants, we, we tend to think of those in the, in the term of contracts. Contracts between men, covenants between men. You have them in your neighborhood. They say you, you can't build uh, certain things on your, on your uh, 
property. You can't do certain things to your property. You've got to do this at a certain time and do this. They even have one in my neighborhood where you're supposed to leave your garage door down. I, I don't know how they came to that one, but I'm sure it has some purpose. They probably felt that way. But their covenants and their agreements, and we tend to look at them that way in our present world. And we go to lawyers and we have these things drawn up. And when we look at those in the present day world, we understand that these are kind of like contracts that are drawn up between people who are offering things of equal value. If you buy a house, you're going to sign a, a kind of a covenant. You're going to promise to pay money so much every month for the privilege of living in that house until it's yours. If you go down and buy a, a, a suit of clothes or something, you're going to give something for that, either the promissory note for credit by plastic or check, or you're going to give them cash. And you, if you buy a car or anything, this is the way we kind of tend to think about it as just contracts of equal value between parties, each of them having something to offer. But to God, to God, the covenant promises that are in these words, when we look at this word testament, New and Old Testament, these are covenants. And when we get to the New Testament, we have to understand that the covenant here takes on a different connotation. It is not a covenant between people who give equal things. It is not a covenant between a God who gives a certain amount and a person who gives something of equal value. The covenant to God, the testament to God that we read here is a unilateral type of an agreement. That means that God gives it all. You can't give anything to God. You can't give him anything. His covenants and his promises that are, that are impacted within this word means that God offers these and you can't do anything. You have nothing of value to bring to God. It's all from him. It came in this New Testament, in this new covenant. It's a unilateral uh, offer from God. It came from a God who has everything. God, can I break your bubble a little bit this morning? God didn't need you to be complete. God was perfectly happy before he had you, and he was perfectly happy before he had me. He was total in himself. Everything was fine with God. He had everything. And when he created the world and everything that's there in it, it still all belongs to God. It's a unilateral organization and offer, and it's to a people who had nothing, nothing. No potential in the world. When you came to God, you had nothing to offer to God. Nothing to offer to God. You couldn't bring him anything. There's an old song, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Remember that old song? You can't bring anything to him. It's offered by God out of a grace and out of a love proposition, it is accepted by people out of a need, out of a need configuration, out of appreciation to God for loving us. It's out of gratitude that we receive this New Testament promises. And in return, we do that for God just to simply bless us. God just to simply bless us. All that he gives to us comes under the guise that all I'm expecting God to give from a person who has nothing to give to him is just so that I can get from him and he can bless me. I was thinking the other day, what, what do I give to God? What do I give to him? That's why David could say, 
I've got, I can't give to God something that means nothing to me. And that's the way it is. God is complete. He needs nothing. All he wants is me giving part of myself, that which I hold a treasure to. I need to give my family to God. I need to give the goods of my house to God. That's why it's such a sin when we want to reach out and, and gather, ingather, and hold everything tight and never share and put up for the future. That, that's, a, that's a problem with the Lord. And it's offered by all the grace and the goodness by God is offered out of a heart that's full of love just so that he can be a blessing to us and bless us just for the fact that we promise to to obey him. Just, just so we'll, he, he just wants our obedience for his blessing. He wants our gratitude. He wants our appreciation when the blessings of God come pouring in. And how, how often we receive the goodness of the Lord. How many of you said, thank you, Lord, that, that the hurricane, as terrible as it was, didn't hit Jacksonville? How many of you are thinking and pray to God, say, thank you, Lord, that with all the, the AIDS crisis, it hasn't touched my family? And can I tell you that you walk by it every day? How, how many of us say, thank you, God, that there's no homosexuals in my immediate family? And yet they tell us about one out of every ten people you walk by are afflicted with that sin. I don't call it disease. I call it sin. We walk by these things, and yet how many times do we fail to say, thank you, Lord. People are to serve God under the covenant provisions that he lays down for them. And the closer we stay to the provisions, the more we are changed into the image of God. That's the way the thing works. We reflect the glory of God in this world as we partake and let the blessings of God pour out and his provisions pour out of us not to draw closer to God if we don't draw make it a purposeful uh, decision in our mind to draw closer to God is one of the greatest sins that we can perpetrate upon the Holy Spirit God has commanded us to draw closer to him so that we can know him so that we can feel his spirit so that we can share in, in his nature and understand who he is and be respectful of his nature and appreciate the great love. And he does this and he reveals this to us as we draw close to him and for a heart to say, Lord, I, I don't want that. I don't want to understand everything that you reveal in this word that you've given to us. To me is a great sin before the Lord because it's replete with things of who you can be and what you can be and what God can speak to you and how he can speak to you if we'll just be obedient to his covenant and to not avail ourselves fully of that. I think it's a great sin before God. In Exodus 34, Moses had to put a veil over his face. It, it talks about here when he had been in the presence of the Lord. That's a wonderful story that's alluded to here. Can I tell you, people know when you've been close to God. People know when you've been praying. People know when you're obedient to the Lord. People know when you're seeking God. A lot of Christians make the mistake of wanting to walk around and, and give the impression that they know everything there is to know about everything. A lot of great preachers and teachers and ministers and, and administrators and, and, and both people we hold upon pedestals in the body of Christ tend to sometimes make us want to think that they got this thing covered from cover to cover, that they know how it all fits together. 
But can I tell you, nobody's got it all. Nobody's got it all. We're all searching. We're all seeking. Every time you think you've got God figured out in one little area, that you've got it locked in, that this is really firmly burned into your mind, how many times has God given you just one little more tidbit of understanding which opened up a whole new panorama of the glory and the blessings of God and how he functions in that particular area? And Moses, when he had been with God, had to put a veil over his face because he had been close to him. And Israel couldn't stand that. They couldn't stand that, that aura because he was a little bit different. When you seek God, you're going to look different. You're going to act different. And you're going to turn off some people. Some people are not going to want to look on your face. I've got friends that don't want to look on my face anymore. Because when they look, they can see the glory of God. You've got friends who don't associate with you anymore because when they look at you, they can see God. God is reflected in you. That's the way he's put this thing together. Israel couldn't stand it, but we have a veil that's put over the faces of many today. And the world can't look at the Christian who is really who they ought to be in God. They can't look upon them. And I understand that. I understand it when people shy away because they, they don't want to see God reflected. Because when they, when they see God in you, then they've got to deal with the lack of the God in themselves. And you can, sometimes you even have to put a veil over your own face when you get with some. You feel yourself have to draw back. You, you, would, love to, you would love to just be able to, to just give them every piece of knowledge that you've learned. You would like to be able to just take them in your arms and cuddle them and say, this is what God has promised for you, to take that little baby Christian who's dying of malnutrition in some of the places where the Word of God is not taught, and you want to just gather them and say, let me tell you what God says about this, but they won't receive it. You've got people you can't minister to because they won't receive it. Because you know if you gave them what you know, they would turn and rend you. So you cannot cast your pearls before swine. You can't speak the word of God until God, the Holy Ghost, plows that ground for you. Zoe Chapel Church, and we go out and we minister in this community. We go out and visit. We, we have plans to expand that. But I cannot tell you, unless we bathe that thing in prayer, unless we get ourselves committed to what the Holy Ghost wants to say through us when we go, if we go out in our own strength, we'll never touch the first soul. We will only turn people off because they don't want to see us. But as we pray and as we get the Holy Spirit working before us in these areas, as we get this area bathed in prayer and get the forces of darkness that are constricting and, and binding this area, as we get those chains broken to where the people can hear the word and we pray the anointing of God upon us and we go out in the strength of the Lord and in the power of His might, then and only then do we see things happen in this neighborhood and then and only then will you see things happen in your own particular ministry. We go out in our own strength, we'll never do anything for God. You try to minister in your workplace. You try to minister in your family. You'll never do anything for God with them. You'll just turn them off. I know, I know men and women who's nagged their mate to the point to where they almost and some did get a divorce. We went to a man's house. I think it was you, brother, you and me, Brother Claude. The first time we went out here, we were together. man said, my wife used to gee on me all the time about that. 
She used to get me all the time about that. And I, I've been through this thing for a long time. I've been on a lot of visitation, been ministering for a long time. And in that one little statement, I heard so I could almost go back and see the panoramic picture of what had gone on in that house. That maid had forgot to, forgotten to bathe that situation in prayer. They had forgotten that there's some things you can say at a time and there's other things you can't say. The Holy Ghost, when we open our mouth, will fill it. He'll fill a home. He will bring that back one. But we have to be under the anointing. And at times, we have to put that veil over our own face in our loved ones. I've got loved ones I can't share everything I know about to them. They can't receive it. And they're wonderful Christian people, but they can't receive it. And, and I come away from those situations with my heart hurting and my heart breaking because I haven't been able to tell them some of the truth that will, that will unlock the bindings of their heart and the bindings in their, in their world. The fact that when they're sick, they're at the mercy of pills and doctors. That when their mind gets confused, that they're at the mercy of the best intellectual friend that they have. But we, who have gone through and allowed God to be everything to us that He will, and who are still learning in the Lord, when we come into a situation where we run up against at the end of our capabilities. Praise God, and aren't you glad that you can take that one more step over in the Spirit, and you can get over into the Spirit of God where there is no limitation. What are we talking about? I'm talking about being able to minister the new covenant of God, being an able minister. And Moses understood that because Israel could not look upon his face. Paul told the Corinthians, the glory of his, parenthesis, Moses' countenance, which glory was to be done away with. It was to be done away. You see, this light that was on Moses' face in time faded. In time, it faded. And this was a contrast, and it's a type, and it's a shadow between the Old Testament that was then and the New Testament that is now. The old faded away. It was to fade away. It was proper that it faded away so that the new could be instituted, so that the new could come into its, its own being. The Old Testament on Mount Sinai, was written on two tablets of stone. But it was, it was written without the power to cause the provisions that were in it to be attained. It didn't have the power. It was an incomplete document. It was going to fade away. It was written on Sinai by God the Father and the Holy Spirit, God. They wrote it on Sinai, but it had great provisions and commandments. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Dealing with God, dealing with man, but there was no latitude in it. There was no grace in it. There was no mercy in it. There was only a perfection that was written in it. You either were or you were not. And I know people today who minister that same way. 
Honey, if you don't do it our way, you're gone. If you commit one little infraction, you're kicked out of heaven and you have to go back through that whole involved process again. Law, law, stringency, cast away, perfection. Can I tell you, nobody could keep the old. It was perfect in its way, but nobody could keep it until Jesus. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I, I looked up the word here uh, when I was looking at this thought. The Greek word for new uh, that the Holy Spirit gave is different than the, than the word he used back in the, uh, uh, for covenant there in the old. The word for, for testament here in, in the, well, it, it's not the word neos, which is new in point of time. That would be the definition for the old, the neos. It's, it's like I've got a, a, a real nice Ford automobile. But it's a 1992, and I want a 1993. So I'm going to get a Neos Ford. It's a, it's a same kind, but it's just a newer model. That's not the word that Paul chose when he talked about the, the covenant of, of which we're living under, this new covenant. He says that there's a, a, a kinos it's a different in quality from the first one. The New Testament, the New Covenant is totally different in its quality than was the old. And I can say, praise God for that. It's a brand new covenant built on better promises. The, the old covenant that Jesus came to fulfill. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3 that it was just a schoolmaster schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Now, many of us don't understand the term schoolmaster in its fullest because teachers today aren't really schoolmasters. A schoolmaster was a schoolmaster. When you sat, you sat at their feet and they thought for you and they told you what you needed and if you didn't do it right, sometimes you'd get a swat on the head or a paddle on the hand. Come to think of it, maybe it hadn't changed that much after all. I've received one or two of those paddles on the hand for, for not progressing as we should have or ha having done everything that we should. But the law was a schoolmaster that was to bring us unto Christ and his, and his provisions, what it was consigned and designed for was to teach discipline and to teach wisdom and to teach knowledge. Men need this. The ungodly need this. Even the godly need to understand those qualities. But to the ungodly, every man has been given the measure of faith that they can come to that piece of understanding that I just shared in, in this New Testament and the, that was promised in the old that of learning discipline and learning wisdom and learning knowledge. But the word goes on also to say that after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under the law. We don't look to that which is perfect to which I cannot attain to be everything that I am in God. I can learn discipline and I can learn wisdom and I can learn understanding as the Holy Spirit who now has the full faith of God which came in Christ 
can perfect and mold and shape me and I can hear that voice. I don't have to be uh, condemned and I don't have to be uh, subjugated by the schoolmaster. I can learn through the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, the law that was contained therein, it could demand and did demand righteousness because it was perfect. It was perfect. There was nothing imperfect in it. Psalmist said that in Psalm 19. And Isaiah came back and, and spoke to us across the eons of time. And in chapter 30, if you would like to read that, it says that the law demands to be heard. You've got to hear the law. But it makes no provision for anything but a perfect walk with the Lord. It doesn't, doesn't make any provisions for anything except perfection. You can't miss the mark that far. That far. You, if you're going to comply with it, you've got to be like it is. You've got to be perfect. And the penalty for not doing that is very clear. The penalty is clear. They, it, it's it's non-debatable because the law is fixed in stone. It is carved in stone. You know what's carved in stone? You can't change. When it's carved in stone, you can't change it. It's always there. And the penalty for not complying which, with the law, which was perfect and stringent, was only death. No in-between. No in-between measure whatsoever. Only death. There were no mitigating circumstances. No contingencies. No provisions that were made in the court system for it in heaven. No plea bargaining to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. You either were or you were not. And everybody was not. And everybody was under the penalty. The only thing they could do was comply. The law was there. And you had to look up to it and you had to do what it said. It demanded the creation of God to be perfect. All this thing that we see around us, the skies and the trees and the animals and the earth itself, when we hear of earthquakes and we hear of uh, storms and we see nature in its, in its tempestuousness and we see it as it were, if you can look into, they call it looking into the teeth of the thorn, a storm. So by metaphor, they, they give it some kind of a, of a, of a personalist and, and they name storms after them. Why? Because nature has its own feelings and it's waiting for under the penalty that was in Christ to be released. So that it wouldn't have to be in that travail. And that's why we, if you listen with your spiritual ears, you can hear nature crying. But it's found as we did, who are the New Testament believers, it found its release in Christ. It found its hope in Christ. Everything ventures and looks back to the blessings of God and to the provisions of the Lord. Nature itself is even thankful to the Lord. Now in the New Testament, the Bible says in, in, in the psalmist that the waves glorify the Lord. 
When the little songbirds sing, I believe they're singing praises unto God. I don't know how they do it, but I believe when the toad frog hops some way he, or croaks, he's, he's some way giving praise to God. It's just intuitive in them what you and I have to search for. And the, the law addressed every issue, the creation and man from God's standpoint. But it didn't carry the power to achieve what was demanded. We, if we think back to our fallen state before we came to the Lord, you don't have to tell a sinner he's a sinner. You don't have to tell an unsaved person that they're unsaved. They know that intuitively. They may want to lie it away and intellectualize it away and, 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 and all the other ways that they have of doing that, of, of kidding themselves until their mind is so baffled and confused that they've lost a precept and moved into more ignorance. And God will allow them to do that. God will allow them to deep it, go into deep perversion if they want to do that. But every heart starts out understanding that they're separated from God and they need some way to get back. And that way was through the cross. And it was in, cross, in, in the Calvary cross that we found our way back. He went, it was there that we found the way back to the power that would get us out of this circumstance that we were in. The law is perfect, made no provisions for sin, but praise God in Christ. Those things were reclaimed, and there was grace, and there was mercy reinstituted. Grace and mercy. I don't know about you, but I needed grace and mercy back then. I needed it. I needed it. And in Christ, the law has made no provision for the immature heart. You were either full-blown perfect or you were full-blown imperfect. But in Christ, it, the Holy Ghost has provision for your and my immaturity, no matter how much and how long we've been walking in this thing. In the New Testament, in Christ, our not using wisdom can be corrected. All of those bad decisions that you've ever made under the law, you would have no excuse. But in Christ and under the cross, there's provision for using lack of wisdom. Under the law, you didn't have any hope. You didn't have any hope. It was all gone. No hope was allowed in that unless you could, unless you could attain to the perfect life. The struggle for perfection is possible in the new covenant. The struggle for perfection. Are you struggling for perfection? Struggle for it every day of my life. Just when I think I've got one thing nailed down, some ugly head rises up here that you've got to, got to deal with. And just when you get that one secured, there's another problem. Maybe of your making, maybe not of my making, but we've got to deal with those. And through the New Testament, that, that struggle is possible because there's grace involved in that. Under the old, there was no way back to God. No way back to God. None. Zero. That's why you couldn't, you couldn't bring anything to God. When you, when you were born, you were destined for hell. Destined for hell. Foregone conclusion. But praise God, under the new that came through Christ, we have a way back to the Lord. 
I'm talking about utilizing this thing and seeing in this as ministers of the New Testament, we're involved in ministering what's in this thing to our own souls and to our own spirits. There is a way back to God. It's called reconciliation that Jesus afforded us that path to do. When you sin, and when I sin, let's don't stay in it. Don't stay in it. There's a way back in the new. For every person who's ever sinned, that's part of the gospel message, is that they don't have to stay in that mess. There's never been a, a drunkard who got themselves into that fix that there's not a way out of it. There's never been a person who sold their bodies for some monetary type of a gain in this life that there's not a way out. There's never been a liar or a cheat a whoremonger or whatever, that there's not a way out of that mess. God can cure and restore the aged person. He can cause the one who has willfully gone into homosexuality. And I'm sorry, it's not disease, it's not heredity, it's because that person chose that way to go. But God has a way out. God has a way out of that mess. A way back. It's called reconciliation. Paul told the Ephesians, the grace of God is allowed to have the power come back to us to apply what we're talking about. And he went on to tell them that truth also is given unto us so that we can, can know how to reach out for the power that will get us out of our situation that we were locked into. Every time that we don't make provisions for the for the word of God that liberates us. Every time we don't apply this, we're dealing in flesh. Every time we say, I can work myself out of this situation. I can work myself out of it. That's flesh. Every time we say, just one more promotion and I can live above the problems of the world. Flesh. I can get to the point where I can understand everything there is and I won't need anybody or anything flesh. I've heard people say that. I'm complete. I've got my retirement check coming in every week. Nobody earned it for me. I earned it myself. I don't, know any, I don't owe anything to any man. I've heard, I've heard people say that. I'm thinking of a man right now that, I, that said that to my understanding. I don't need any, I don't owe anything to anybody. I've got it made. And I had to put a veil over my face. And I thought, my Lord, what can I give this person that he could receive? What's there that, that could turn that kind of a heart back to understanding? And I had to put the veil, I had to willfully put the veil over my face because he couldn't look. And I've been around Christians who will fight you for the right to be poor and be ignorant and be sick. And at times I have to put a veil over my face. I've got some Christian people that I can fellowship with for a shorter period of time, not extended period of time, because when I'm with them, I have to put a veil over my face. Peggy and I were going to go on, a, I think I've shared this before, either in the college or in the church. I don't know if, it, if I've said it before. Just bear with me. It, it fits here. <clears throat> we were going to go on after we had left the church that we used to be in years and years ago that did not preach the power and the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what can, what can work in the life when that goes through. 
And yet we'd been out of that place for a while, and we were still friends with them. They were going to go. The pastor was going to take them on a cruise for like seven days, I think it was. And we signed up because we love these people, and I love them to this day. Love them to this day, and I could go to that church right now, and for a short period of time, I could have meaningful fellowship with them up to a point as long as the veil was over my face. But we signed up for the cruise, and, and the closer, this was like three months before, and we got to like within a month when you had to either confirm or, or cancel out. And I went back to Peggy, and I said, I'm sorry we can't go on that cruise. And she said, why? I said, because I, we cannot lock our spirits up with these people for seven solid days because one of two things will happen. Either we will compromise and quench the Holy Spirit of God or we'll have to take away the veil off of our face and they'll have, we'll have to speak truth to them and it will cause confusion and dissension and it's better that we just cancel out and not go. And we couldn't go. We couldn't go. Sometime you have to veil yourself. The problem is with a lot of charismatics and Pentecostals, they don't know when to pull down the veil. And by not doing that, they cause more of a problem than they would if they hadn't even been there. If we can't go in the Spirit of God with the Spirit of God using us and, and blending us into them and speaking to us, then stay home. Don't wound that Spirit. Don't be a stumbling block. We can be a stumbling block with too much gospel the same as we can be without ever speaking the Word. We can't, we can't choke people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a key. It's not a battering ram. We can't minister truth that, that ministers to a person's soul by taking a hatchet or a club type of, of approach to them. We've got to take the key that will unlock that which is holding them captive. And it's contained within the New Testament. Paul told them that there's things in the New Testament that we need to understand. Those who will understand, this new covenant speaks to them. Those who will understand, it'll tell you that you're a chosen person. You didn't choose God. You didn't all of a sudden one day say, I'm going to be a Christian. It's one day that God says, hey, let me, let me make a proposition to you. If you'll do this, I'll give you this. If you'll do this for me, then I'll do all of this for you. And he holds it out to us. And all we have to do is accept that. Paul says we're chosen. And then he tells them, says, you washed. After you're chosen, you're washed. God cleans you up. He cleans you up. You don't smell like you used to. Powder and paint can't cover up the filth of sin. Only the washing of the water of the Word. Paul tells them, he says, that God, after He washes you, that, that He sanctifies you. That just simply means that He sets you apart for service unto Him. In other words, He just says, hey, look at it. Look at it. Look at that one right there. I've washed them up. Now, you take a look at them because I've got a, I've got a place for them. I've got, a, I've got a sanctified place for them. And one of the greatest things that he says is I want you to look what I've done. I've justified them. I've 
justify this one. Look at the countenance on that face, and, and they're looking at you, and they're looking at me. And what that uh, justi uh, justification means to me is that I don't even feel that old dirtiness. I don't even feel that disturbingness uh, that used to be there when the, when the awareness of sin, because the, would would, the law would just let me think about those things. When you're thinking about the, what you used to be like, when Satan is whispering those things, you used to do this and you used to do that. And if you stop one minute and give him credence for all that, you're putting yourself back under the old covenant, back under the law. And God says, I've justified you from that. Lot told his wife, don't look back. God says not for us to look back. Lot told his wife. God tells you and me this morning, I have justified you. Don't look back. The life before is gone. Your yesterday is gone. The way you missed God yesterday, that's history because you repented from that. And God re-cleansed you. And when that happened, Paul says, at every re-cleansing, we're drawn nigh to God and we can have fellowship with Him. Do you realize that you can have fellowship with God? How many of you enjoy fellowship with God? Isn't it wonderful? just to sit down and just, and just have a good time with the Lord. I know people who've never had real fellowship with God. Every time they get in, in a sanctified state, they're always thinking about what a miserable piece of something they used to be. Never in, enjoy what God's, what God's got in their life now. Appreciating the blessings of God. Saying, oh God, I just thank you for, for just revealing yourself to me. For showing me your power. For just showing me what I can be. God wants us looking up and ahead. He doesn't want us looking to the side or back. All of his promises are yea and amen. All of his decisions for you is to be better th tomorrow than you are today. And praise God. To me, that's what, that's what abundance is. When I preach on abundance, I preach on it from the aspect, man, I, I can think of great things and God's blessed me immensely, but it ain't nothing like I'm going to be tomorrow, next year, next week. I don't have one problem at all about going up to God and say, I'll take everything you got for me, Lord. Everything you got for me. And some say, oh, well, that just means, that just means uh, so that you can have peace of mind, brother. I read a, I, I read a piece of tripe yesterday, and I'm, I may wound you with this, but you just... You just swallow a couple of times and let God minister it. But it struck my spirit long. Maybe I shouldn't even say it, but I'm going to. Mother Teresa, I don't have any doubt that she does wonderful things for God. I believe that she does. Nobel Peace Prize winner. I just read the paper yesterday. She's got two dresses, and each of them are worth a dollar. God will let you serve where you want to. If, if, if we want to be happy wallowing around in, in, you know, a, in that kind of a circumstance, God will do that. And I, please know, I'm, I'm not casting dispersion on, on, the, on, on this particular personality. What I'm just saying is that, that I believe God wants to bless his people with her contacts and her affluency. What is wrong with her having a toilet in the house? <laughs> Or having three dresses. And where do you stop? I don't know. I'm not, I don't put a place on God. If she's happy with that, praise God. 
I, I just don't believe you ladies would be happy with two dresses, each of them costing a dollar. You say we live in a different society. No, you can live that way if you want to. I know some people that, that their religiosity is all, is all done away. You look at them and you know that with their little honey bun on the back of their head and their little print dress, uh, print dresses almost say the triple X for flower on the back, that by that they're saying they're righteous. It, my Lord, if you put on lipstick, you are lost and going to hell, according to their theology. Law. Old Testament law. We are free in Christ, saints. Free in the Lord. Free to enjoy his blessings, to have those blessings poured out upon us. To enjoy that. Paul says we're chosen, we're washed, we're sanctified, we're brought near. And we're to be as gods in this world. You say, that's not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. It's in Genesis chapter 3. That's Old Testament. God told Moses, you're going to be as, as God to Pharaoh. You're going to be as a God to Pharaoh. What was in the old is never done away with. It is only modified into the new. The Old Testament, Christ perfected into a broader scope. If Moses could be as a God to Pharaoh, what do you think you can be in a more equally perverse world? You're going to appear as gods in this world that you live in. Moses worked miracles. That's why he appeared as a God. That's why they looked up. You know, the world only understands supernatural things power, things of that nature. Today, when you move in the fullness of the Holy Spirit with the power of God working in you, seeking to be everything you are, there will be times when you will lay hands upon somebody and you'll speak a healing into their body or you'll speak prosperity and you'll see God heal a body just like that, that quickly. And if it hasn't happened yet, get yourself baptized with the Holy Spirit if you haven't with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And don't get locked on the tongue. Just get more Jesus. And go looking for somebody to lay hands on. Look for somebody to lay hands on. Look for somebody to speak blessings into. And God will honor that. God will honor that. And when the miracles happen, you are going to appear as a God to the world, to that person. When miracles happen, you appear as a God. The key is to letting them know that it's not us, but it's God who's doing the work through us. The key is to give glory to God. When we apply the new covenant, wonderful things happen. I enjoy ministering in the new covenant. I enjoy ministering hope to those who have no hope. I enjoy ministering healing to those whose bodies are hurting. I enjoy ministering faith to those who have, have no, no faith going in their lives. And see, there's been times I've ministered the gift of faith. God allows me to do that at times. And if, if you've ministered, you probably have, have, have at times maybe moved in that area yourself. But sometimes God will allow me to minister 
just a gift of faith to somebody. Why? Because they're depleted at that time. They just need, they need something supernatural that they can believe God to do what His Word. Not believe me, but so that they can believe God to do what His Word says. And wonderful things happen when we apply the Word of God. You see, Christ has freed us from the bondage that was in the old and freed us to use the liberty which is in the new. He is our liberator. He is our one who comes in and kicks away the door that held us captive. He's the one that breaks the stone that would hold us in bondage under the law. I was thinking that in Florence, Italy, there's a building called the Academia. Maybe you visited or read about it. Pretty well known, not story, but piece of understanding. And inside this building in Florence, there's a piece of marble that had started to be worked upon and chiseled out and sculptured by the, by the sculptor Michelangelo. And before he could finish this piece of work, he had just started working on the outlines when he died. And it remains an unfinished piece of art. And if you look into it, you can see the dim figures of the people that he had started carving into this piece of stone. And, and they're not really, their features aren't discernible. And, and all of their members aren't, aren't exactly distinct as they would be. And they, they appear to be incarcerated in this block of stone. And they're struggling, they appear to be struggling to get out because the master never finished that. And even the title of that particular piece of, of stone is called The Prisoners. The Prisoners. Because in that one little visible representation that they call art, man recognizes the struggle of mankind. And we as Christians recognize, praise God, what he did in our life as he freed us from that same kind of bondage. I was locked in and no way out. I didn't have somebody to, to break it away before Christ. Destined for hell and destined for failure. Destined for eternity lost. Paul says, I want you to recognize, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you need to recognize this kind of a, of a thought in you. He says, such were some of you going on this same kind of connotation. He says, when you look at a church service, and I'm paraphrasing Paul, when you look at a church full of people, if every seat in here were full, and you look across this at people worshiping God and praising God and giving God glory with the, with the blessings of the Lord obviously on their face, perceptible, with the, with the veil taken off, and you look behind, uh, behind that face and you see God radiating. But if you were to go back beyond that and, and back up their life, Paul would say behind everyone, just as behind us every day in the sanctuary today, Paul says there's fornicators in there. There's idolaters in there. There's adulterers in there. There's, the, there's who are the effeminate in there. There are thieves who are in there. 
And there's drunkards. There's drunkards in this congregation, Paul would say. And if he left it there, wouldn't it be terrible, the captivity that would be there? But in Christ, in Christ, stepping through into the new covenant versus the old and getting in Christ, God allows us to deal with some of these things in our lives that would draw us back and cause pain. Some of the things we just read may or may not apply to you. There's some in there I, that I would say deal with every one of us in here today. Maybe some of the more descriptive ones wouldn't affect your life, but every one of us are guilty of, of idolatry. Every one of us are guilty of thievery. Every one of us are guilty of being a liar. You say, well, I've never done those things. Like the man who came to Jesus. I've kept all these things from my youth. I've never done that. I've never been a drunkard and never been a fornicator and an adulterer. I've always told the truth. Jesus says, are you? Are you? Doesn't that remember it kind of sound like a publican? Kind of sound like that publican. Went on the street corner. And I've seen people like that. I've seen some publican spirits. Lord, I thank you I'm not like those people over there. Lord, I thank you I'm Pentecostal. I'm not like that uh, church down the road that doesn't preach that. Lord, I'm thanking that, that, that I tithe and, and give offerings and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit work through me. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like some of those people. I give to the poor. Christ says, you think you're pretty good, huh? The one person in the Bible I think could have quoted this scripture was James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he quoted this in James chapter 2. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, He's guilty of all. Guilty of all. Oh, James, I, I'm sure he thought many times as he wrote, I grew up in the house with God. He grew up together. I watched God in my midst. And I missed him. I'm sure James and the others poked fun at Jesus for some of the things, the righteous things that he did. There always seems to be one kid in the family who the rest of them, if you've got a large family or medium family, they always point out as kind of a goody two-shoes. They always seem to be doing what mama or daddy want them to do. And those who are trying their wings in the world, they... They kind of tend to say, you're setting too high an example for us. Ease off a little bit. And I think James had a chance to reflect on that many times as he reflected back on Christ as he was growing up in that household. And James says, if you offend in one thing, you're guilty of it all. Maybe you and I have never been an adulteress. Maybe we have never 
been adulterated. But if we've ever told one little half-truth, guess what? You're guilty of it all. Guilty of it all. And therefore, need repentance for it all. 